You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, we've got some advice on pulmonary hypertension for you, asking how to diagnose and manage the condition. Uh, it's very difficult to directly measure the pressure in the pulmonary arteries, and we make the diagnosis really at cardiac catheterization. But clearly, we need to try and identify the patients who are going to have um, pulmonary hypertension. But firstly, a success story. In 2007, Australia started giving girls the quadrivalent HPV vaccine. That's the form that covers HPV 16 and 18, which are linked to genital cancer, but also 6 and 11, which cause genital warts. Now, a paper published in the BMJ shows a dramatic decline in this sexually transmitted infection. I spoke to co-author Basil Donovan, who's head of sexual health at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, about the results and Australia's programme. We were very lucky. Um, it, the the programme was implemented in the middle of 2007. In fact, when the tender was called for a vaccine, there was only one vaccine which was approved in Australia, which was the quadrivalent vaccine. So for us, the bivalent vaccine was never an issue. The government was in a bit of a hurry to get the campaign out because there was an, an election on the way. And back in those days, before the global financial crisis, there was plenty of money around and the vaccine rolled out very well. And um, and you looked at the, the impact of the programme in, in 2011 on, um, on genital warts. So just to be clear, um, what proportion of which age group of women would have been vaccinated at that point? She looked at two periods, which is the pre-vaccination 2004 to mid-2007 and then mid-2007 to 2011. Within a year or so, we had around about 85% of the youngest girls in our cohort, so those aged 12 to 18, about 85% had had at least one shot and 75% completed the course and somewhat lower rates but still pretty good out of the older women 18 to 26 the coverage coverage was between sort of 50 and 60% because they weren't sort of lined up at school and vaccinated they had to individually go to their doctor okay sure the way you assessed this was you had data from eight sexual health services across Australia. So you had um, data on the genital warts rates and also on age and gender of um, the patient's sexual partners. And two of the centres also had self-reported data on, on whether or not the patient had had the HPV vaccine. What were the headline results from that data? And We confined our analysis to Australian-born women for the reason that we, in our clinics, see an awful lot of travellers and so on. So we sort of had to try and keep the analysis and the message as clear as possible. So the most vaccinated group going through our, through our clinics, which was uh, Australian-born women under the age of 21, had a quite a remarkable decline of uh, 93% in the prevalence of warts, which is interesting considering the vaccine coverage would have only been 85% at best. Right, okay. Um, what the, proportion the, did that actually drop down to then? Oh, it dropped from about 10% to under 1%. Great. Uh, which is also a big saving for the, on the clinical service because mm. you know, warts are a 
time-consuming and difficult to treat. In, in the second most vaccinated group, which was women aged 21 to 30, there was still a better than 70% drop in genital warts and in women over the age of 30, there was no decline at all. Okay. And that was the group that were never eligible for the vaccine. Mm. Reflecting that, uh, the young men had a, a more than 80% decline in genital warts and if you want to call them that, middle-aged men between 21 and 30 had still a significant but lesser drop and the older men had no decline. That was just confined to um, heterosexual men, is that right? Yeah, don't think we actually saw any significant decline in, in gay men. Um, the, the prevalence dropped a little bit, but we, we attribute that to the fact that we've been very actively encouraging them, encouraging them to come into the clinic for asymptomatic screening. Okay. And, and what about the women who um, self-reported having the vaccine? Did you see any cases of genital warts in them? Yeah, we collected the data on individual data on vaccination status from the two largest clinics, and they would make up half the patients in the in the study. And in the women that said they'd been vaccinated, in 2010 there was one case of genital warts, and by 2011 there were none at all. Great. And we we found that really quite striking, because type six and type eleven, two of the target viruses in the vaccine. Mm. Uh, were supposed to only account for 90% of genital warts. So we, we we never expected a complete disappearance of genital warts in that population. Yes. Now, that, that raises the very interesting prospect that maybe this vaccine is telling us stuff about HPV infection that we didn't know before. Mm. One of the possibilities that's raised is that all genital warts are caused by type 6 and 11. Uh, maybe with some contribution from 16 and 18. There's recent research now suggesting that HPV-16, one of the cancer-causing target viruses, there's a suggestion that it actually may be responsible for a much bigger proportion of cancers than were previously suspected. Mm. And only time will tell. It will take at least several more years before we'll start to get, get that message. Do you think the effectiveness that we see on genital warts is, is likely to translate to, to the cancers that it can cause? We have no reason to think it won't, and we certainly hope it will. We're hoping to get at least a 70% decline, and I would expect possibly even higher. Now that we've confirmed the efficacy of, of the vaccine out in the population setting rather than the clinical trial setting, and we're all itching to see the results. Uh, certainly there's been a couple of early studies reporting fairly dramatic drops in high-grade cervical lesions in very young women, in well, girls really, and very young women in uh, Denmark and Australia. You know, they're early studies, they're ecological studies, and we just have to wait and see. The Australian government has, has now extended the vaccine to boys. Could you yep. tell me a bit about that and, and what the rationale was behind that? The, the rationale for vaccinating the boys was because in Australia and probably many Western countries, around about 25% of all the HPV-related cancers occur in men. And rather ominously, the two most common cancers, which are anal cancer and oropharyngeal cancer in men, over the last generation have been 
declining relentlessly. And clearly the authorities sat down and said, where is that graph going to be if we haven't if we don't vaccinate boys? The gay men who are not getting any benefit at all from the from the female vaccination are hugely disproportionately affected by HPV related cancers. I mean there is an alternative strategy, one which I think is rolling out in the UK, which is try and vaccinate the youngest gay men as they present to your GUM clinics. But we're concerned mm. that the delay before they present to the clinics will be too, be too late. They've been sexually active for a number of years. Mm. So if you want to really protect them, you have to do it before they even know they're gay. Yes. And you're never going to get the coverage doing it that way as you can see getting the, the, the girls in school, I guess. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you're vaccinating in a clinical setting, it's always a lower coverage rate. Mm. So, so now Australia has this policy of, of vaccinating girls and boys. Do you think we're going to see um, near elimination of all HPV-caused diseases there? Yeah, we we modelled it for, um, and we're sending off a paper for, for publication. We've modelled what the effect will be on genital warts, and we're looking at near elimination. The only factor that will be working, working against us will be um, migration, which will be unvaccinated people arriving in Australia. Mm. We modelled what effect the British backpackers could have. There's very large numbers coming to Australia, and before they were vaccinated against the quadrivalent vaccine, you know, they, they would have become one of the most substantial sources of genital warts in Australia. From now on, that's going to cease to be an issue. Well, they're very heartening results, uh, and thank you very much for, for coming on and telling us about them. Pleasure. Good to chat. And now, how to diagnose and manage pulmonary hypertension. I'm Sophie Cook, a GP and assistant editor at the BMJ. Today I'm joined on the phone by Dr David Kiley, consultant respiratory physician at the Royal Hallamshire Hospital in Sheffield and one of the authors of our current clinical review on pulmonary hypertension. David, do you want to start off by telling us a bit about what is pulmonary hypertension? Well, pulmonary hypertension is um, high blood pressure in the in the lungs. And in contrast to um, systemic hypertension, which is quite easy to diagnose in the clinic with a sphygmomanometer, uh, it's very difficult to directly measure the pressure in the pulmonary arteries. And we make the diagnosis really at cardiac catheterization. But clearly, we need to try and identify the patients who are going to have um, pulmonary hypertension. So severe pulmonary hypertension is very, very rare. But we see mild elevations in pulmonary artery pressure very commonly in people with um, severe cardiac and respiratory disease. And it's a big challenge, I think, particularly for doctors working in um, primary care, that you'll see many patients with breathlessness, which is the cardinal symptom of pulmonary hypertension. Um, But clearly, there'll be many, many other reasons that that patient is likely to have breathlessness. So it's a very difficult diagnosis to make pulmonary hypertension, certainly in the primary care setting. One of the, I think, startling statistics is that it takes usually some of the region of two or so years from initial presentation with symptoms um, suggestive pulmonary hypertension to finally making the diagnosis. And clearly, there's many reasons for that. You mentioned just now about certain patient groups being more at risk of pulmonary hypertension. Can you just highlight who they might be so GPs know in which cases they should be considering this diagnosis? Yes, I think that's a a very important point. So so, there are five sort of major groups, pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is a a vasculopathy affecting the small blood vessels in the lungs. That's a form of pulmonary hypertension we can treat with drugs. Um, 
and we have chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, um, which can occur in patients who had pulmonary thromboembolic disease in the past, and that can be potentially cured by surgery. And we have pulmonary hypertension that we see in cardiac and respiratory disease, and then finally there's a miscellaneous group. But in terms of the patients that we can um, treat specifically with pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension, um, when we look at the patients we see in our clinics, about a third of them have sporadic or idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension with no cause. Um, but systemic sclerosis um, and other connective tissue diseases associated with pulmonary hypertension, and we also see it in the setting of congenital heart disease. So if you have systemic sclerosis, um, your risk of having pulmonary hypertension is about 1 in 10. Uh, as a consequence of this, patients with systemic sclerosis are usually screened by the rheumatologist with an echocardiogram and a lung function test on a, a yearly basis. But clearly, if you have a patient in primary care with systemic sclerosis who presents a new diagnosis for the first time, um, certainly one needs to consider the diagnosis of, of pulmonary hypertension in those patients. Um, other forms of pulmonary arterial hypertension, such as congenital heart disease, probably some in the region of 5-10% of patients with congenital heart disease will have pulmonary arterial hypertension. So again, progressive breathlessness in this setting should raise the possibility of underlying um, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Other groups are those patients with liver disease who are not um, uncommonly encountered in primary care. And clearly, if you've got underlying liver disease, um, if the patient is breathless, we should consider the possibility of pulmonary hypertension. One, I think, very important group um, are patients who have a history of pulmonary thromboembolic disease. Chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is increasingly recognized in patients with a history of pulmonary embolism. So if you've had a pulmonary embolism in the past, your risk of developing chronic thromboembolic disease over the period of the next few years is somewhere in the region of um, 1 in 200 to about um, 1 in 25. Um, so anyone with a history of pulmonary embolism in the past who presents with um, breathlessness, then clearly one needs to consider chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So it sounds like the group in which GPs might be able to have the most impact in picking up pulmonary hypertension is those who've had embolic disease. Yes, I mean, I think um, probably every every general practitioner will see quite a few patients with pulmonary thromboembolic disease. And I, I think one of the other things about pulmonary thromboembolic disease and also DVT is that the way that patients have been, I think, managed in the secondary care setting has been um, has been very variable over time that um, if you go into hospital with a pulmonary embolism that uh, patients are often managed by different specialists and generalists and more recently I think what is interesting is that certain centres including our own have now dedicated pulmonary thromboembolic disease clinics so certainly in our centre all the patients with a pulmonary embolism will be seen at three months in a joint clinic by a haematologist and, and a respiratory physician stroke pulmonary vascular physician and will assess those patients following pulmonary embolism for a variety of different things deciding on duration of anticoagulation and also the likelihood that that patient might have chronic thromboembolic disease. But I think across the country, it's, it's, it's very variable how services are delivered for patients with pulmonary thromboembolic disease. And many patients who have pulmonary embolic disease, I think historically, have just had relatively brief periods of anticoagulation, such as six months of anticoagulation with warfarin for the first pulmonary embolism. Um, but one of the um, interesting aspects of the management, I think, now of pulmonary embolism is the recognition that um, patients who've had a unprovoked pulmonary th thromboembolism are at increased risk of having further pulmonary emboli in the past. And indeed, if you have an unprovoked pulmonary embolism, your risk of having a further one is around about 20 to 30% over the, the subsequent three years. Um, so I think there are very important things to understand about the pathophysiology of uh, pulmonary thromboembolic disease. 
But if you're trying to identify people who've had a pulmonary thromboembolism who are at increased risk of having chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension in the future, um, those patients who are at highest risk are those patients who present with, first of all, a sizable uh, lung clot, those patients presenting with recurrent lung clots, and also patients who present with unprovoked pulmonary thromboembolism, particularly at a young age. I think one of the important questions is if you do have a patient with a previous pulmonary embolism, um, how do you exclude um, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension? Yes, I think that's a very important point for GPs um, who, as you say, might see quite a few people who've had a PE in the past. So, David, if a GP suspects the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, what investigations might help them to confirm the diagnosis? So, I think the Probably the most helpful um, non-invasive test to suggest the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension will be the echocardiogram. What the echocardiogram can do is it can allow a, a, a direct estimate of systolic pulmonary artery pressure. Um, and it can also look at the size of the cardiac chambers, can look at the function of the heart, uh, and also can look for a variety of different valvular abnormalities. So usually it's the echocardiogram that will initially suggest the possibility of underlying um, pulmonary hypertension. And I think just to emphasize that word of caution is that if you suspect the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension and the, the patient has symptoms of breathlessness um, and the echocardiogram doesn't suggest the patient's got pulmonary hypertension, I think one needs to continue to explore why that patient is breathless. And it mm. can be that that patient may turn out to have pulmonary hypertension that's missed on echo. Um, and certainly, we were discussing pulmonary thromboembolic disease earlier on. If you were wondering if a patient following a pulmonary embolism may have chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, then one could perform a, a test such as a um, Q scan, um, a nuclear medicine test, which if normal, essentially excludes the diagnosis of chronic thromboembolic disease. Um, so it depends very much on the, the sort of group of patients that you, you, you're looking at. I should also say that certain investigations may well suggest the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension and in the assessment of a breathless patient, simple tests such as an ECG and, and chest x-ray um, can sometimes suggest the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension the patient presents with breathlessness. So certainly in the setting of severe disease, an ECG that, for example, showed right axis deviation and ST depression in the inferior and anterior leads um, would be suggestive of, of, of pulmonary hypertension, a patient with progressive breathlessness. And clearly, a patient is breathless with cardiomegaly. Um, once you consider you know, why the patient has cardiomegaly, and clearly it may be a consequence of left heart disease, but pulmonary hypertension can also cause uh, an increase in cardiac size. But a normal ECG and chest X-ray clearly can't be used in clinical practice to exclude um, pulmonary hypertension. You, you mentioned the chest X-ray. What things might uh, highlight a suspicion of pulmonary hypertension on a chest X-ray? On the chest X-ray, a large heart. So you can see when you have a right ventricular enlargement, you will see evidence of cardiomegaly um, and also um, large proximal pulmonary arteries. Um, it, some of these signs, however, in a chest X-ray can be very, very subtle. Uh, in patients who've had chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, for example, we can sometimes see asymmetry in, in the pulmonary vasculature on the chest X-ray. So I think the chest X-ray is probably most useful as a, a, sort of a test in the breathless patient that's pr probably going to suggest another diagnosis rather than positively suggesting the patient's going to have pulmonary hypertension. And then when they reach you in secondary care, what investigations will you perform to confirm the diagnosis? 
I think when that diagnosis is suggested and severe pulmonary hypertension is suggested, then usually in secondary care, what would happen in the United Kingdom is that that individual would then be referred on to a specialist pulmonary hypertension centre. And I think in the UK that we are very fortunate in having a sort of network of specialist centres across the country who've been set up to provide rapid diagnostic services for patients with suspected pulmonary hypertension then tailored treatment for patients who do have pulmonary hypertension. So when that patient comes to a specialist pulmonary hypertension centre, what is often very helpful and what we usually receive is uh, any local images that have been performed locally. So the patients have had a CT scan or a Q scan performed locally, then to have those images linked is, is very, very helpful for us. Um, certainly our practice in our centre is usually to see the patient in the outpatient setting to get a, a good sort of story um, from the patient and, and also to perform some basic investigations. And we'll often, um, as there's not been a recent chest x-ray, repeat that and do some basic tests of spirometry and gas transfer factor, an ECG uh, and a walking test. And, and usually we would repeat an echocardiogram. It sometimes be very reassuring to see on a repeat echocardiogram that everything now looks okay the pressures aren't high and if the symptoms have all sort of settled then there's no need for further assessment or if this suggests that the pulmonary hypertension is mild and related to left heart disease and the patient we, we may not need to see them again but from that initial assessment we've normally got a, a fair idea what the probability of that patient having pulmonary hypertension is uh, and sometimes we've got an idea of what the cause is and then we'd usually admit that uh, patient for you know a number of tailored investigations um, and that will include um, simple blood tests to look for underlying connective tissue disease um, and a number of imaging tests, a high resolution CT with a CT pulmonary angiogram if that's not been performed before and we'd usually perform a, a cardiac MR with an MR angiogram and then a, a right heart catheter and I think depending from the history other investigations such as overnight eximetry because conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea could clearly cause pulmonary hypertension. So based on these investigations and a clinical assessment, we're usually in a position to make a, a pretty firm diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. And then I think, very importantly, identify what form of pulmonary hypertension that patient has. And for those patients in whom we can't offer any specific um, therapy for the pulmonary hypertension, we can identify in part a cause for their breathlessness. You know, the treatment uh, is best aimed at the underlying condition. And those patients are, are then usually discharged from our service. Uh, and the patients who we tend to look after in the long term are those patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension and chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension in whom we can offer a specific therapy. And so what's also, I think, important when the patients do come to our centre that when they are given a diagnosis, that the patient can be counselled and educated about their condition. I think what we have to realise is these patients who do come here to a specialist centre and are given a diagnosis spend 99% of their time not in hospitals and not in clinic appointments, but out in the community trying to lead active and, and productive lives. And it's our, our responsibility to try and support them in that endeavour with their local physicians and, and primary care physicians. You mentioned that there are subsets of pulmonary hypertension where there's now pharmacological therapies. Could you tell us a bit about those? Yes, so um, pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is a, a vasculopathy affecting the small um, blood vessels in the lungs, the, the, the treatment is aimed at trying to um, open up these blood vessels um, and um, allow more blood to pass through the lungs and um, reduce the, the pressure and resistance to blood flow in the pulmonary circulation, improve cardiac function. So the drugs really target three different pathways. 
carotenoids, where essentially vasodilators with antiproliferative effects that can cause pulmonary vasodilatation. Um, one of the difficulty with um, prostenoids is that they are not very well tolerated orally, although there are studies ongoing with oral therapies. But the prostenoid drugs traditionally um, were given via the intravenous route. The two other pathways that we can actually currently target with licensed therapies are the um, endothelium pathways and the nitric oxide pathways. So endothelium-1 is a very potent um, pulmonary vasoconstrictor with um, um, proliferative uh, effects. So we can block the effects of endothelium-1 um, with a, a number of different oral therapies. Um, and so these treatments have been shown in randomized controlled trials to improve exercise capacity and symptoms in patients with pulmonary hypertension. And the third pathway is the nitric oxide pathway. And so we use drugs called phosphodesterase inhibitors, which essentially amplify the, the nitric oxide signal. And these drugs include drugs such as sildenafil and, and tadalafil. Um, and these are the sort of three major pathways that we can actually currently target. And usually for our patients who are... Um, moderately or, or, or mildly limited that we would go down the route usually of starting with oral therapies and would usually go down the route of giving a single drug and then depending on the patient's response and aiming to try and improve the patient to a certain level then we'd usually escalate treatment depending on the clinical response. Um, so I think one of the challenges in, in, in pulmonary hypertension, I suppose, in, in many conditions is trying to identify the patient who's going to benefit from the correct therapy. So give as few treatments as possible to minimise side effects, but to give maximal benefit. So finally, David, for people reading your review or listening to this podcast, what are the key messages you'd like them to take away about pulmonary hypertension? Well, I think for me that... Um, one of the important things to remember is that pulmonary hypertension uh, has many causes. And I think what's absolutely key in is to recognize that depending on the underlying cause depends very much on what the future holds and also what the, the most appropriate therapy is. And I, I think also that one needs to remember that over the period of the last 10 years that the treatments for pulmonary hypertension have come on in leaps and bounds. And so I think many people... 10, 20 years ago would have thought that certain forms of pulmonary hypertension, there were very, very limited therapies. But actually now the, the outlook for patients is, is very, um, very significantly improved. I think also to recognize that specialist centers have a, a very key role in this condition and as much as they can um, provide sort of access to an investigative uh, and a treatment pathway. And I think very importantly, the support networks that we can then provide for our patients. And, and finally, I think for the patients and, and their families to recognise it in the UK, we're very fortunate to have the, um, the Pulmonary Hypertension Association, which is a, uh, a network for patients uh, and their carers and, and, and families, which provides, um, you know, it's, it's a fantastic educational resource. And I think also for healthcare professionals uh, who are not necessarily specialists in, in pulmonary hypertension, the, the PHA UK is, is, is an excellent resource and there are online educational materials that um, general practitioners and other healthcare physicians can certainly plug into. Great. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Kylie's advice on pulmonary hypertension is also available as a clinical review on bmj.com. So have a look at that for more detail. That wraps it up for this week. Come back next week when we'll be looking into online patient communities and discussing how to care for a dying patient in hospital. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.